Welcome to the John Sandoz podcast. For those who don't know, obliging authors come to Sandoz and give talks, usually about once a month. Their award, a bottle of champagne and our pleasure. These talks take place upstairs, where there is just about room for 30 people. A bookshelf is swung back, chairs put out, and wine bottles opened. This first Sandoz podcast was recorded on the 4th of September 2019, the evening before William Dalrymple launched his latest book, The Anarchy, The Relentless Rise of the East India Company. William himself, of course, needs no introduction. Well, it's very nice to come here. Thank you all for cramming in. Um, Johnny is an old, old friend. Um, and as he said, well, my very first book, um, I remember coming to sign here, <clears throat> now in the throes of middle age and, uh, and middle age spread, it's, uh, this is a very nice place to start uh, uh, what is going to be five months of book touring. And I will probably give this talk that I'm about to give to you I don't know, 100 times over the next two years. Um, and uh, this is the first time. By the end of the tour, it'll be fluent, and uh, uh, and we'll come out uh, effortlessly with full of wit and humour. I'm afraid you're getting the um, getting the prototype, and I won't be able to do it by heart. And we'll stumble, but and, and forgive me for uh, forgive me for um, no doubt fluffing it. But this is a book about the East India Company. Uh, John Kay, who wrote the last sort of big. Um, study the East India Company, says in his introduction, uh, he talks about this, he gives this image of historians littered around the uh, India office library, dying at their desks with sort of cobwebs, propping them up uh, to their unfinished histories of the East India Company. The reason that it's so difficult to write the history of the East India Company is that it being a, uh, a bureaucracy, uh, there is just too much material. It's the opposite problem that most historians face in most subjects, particularly uh, historians dealing with, uh, with faraway places and, and, and centuries ago. There are 35 miles, allegedly, of, of uh, East India Company uh, records underground uh, in, in the vaults of the British Library, uh, and more in the headquarters, which is, is, is what you get in the British Library is the, is the stuff that they sent to London the records that went off to Leadenhall Street. The headquarters of the East India Company now lies underneath the Lloyds building uh, in Leadenhall Street in the city of London. Uh, the headquarters, which was Fort William in Calcutta, those records are now in the National Archives in India, um, which is a far more eccentric place to work, as you could imagine. The, the India office works with clockwork efficiency and pin drop silence, but you get thrown out at 4.30, um, and you have to start packing up your stuff at 4.30. The Indian National Archives uh, is totally chaotic, uh, and uh, uh, the indexes for the whole of the 18th century disappeared when, when I first went in there. The 19th century is, is beautifully uh, uh, kept, but the, uh, the 18th century was a mess. And um, half the stuff doesn't turn up, but they've got m so much material. And it's slightly like, I think, imagine a child at boarding school writing home to his parents or her parents. Um, you don't tell your parents anything except what you want them to hear um, and occasional grumbles. Uh, and that's what's in London. What happens, uh, actually happens at school is recorded in, the, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, what, in Delhi. And these are the archives that uh, I've, I've concentrated on. They're much less used. Um, and it stays open till about nine o'clock. So when you get in there, you can just spend hours and hours and hours uh, amid these crumbling documents. Um, and it tells an extraordinary story because we still talk about the British conquering India. But it wasn't the British per se who conquered India. It was one corporation based in one London office block. Uh, in the middle of Leadenhall Street in the city of London. And uh, in 18th century prints, you can see it, it's five windows wide. It's not hugely, the street frontage isn't hugely bigger than this bookshop, but it went back. And so it, the workings, the Byzantine workings uh, of the East India Company remained hidden from the street. And while it suited the company to big up and uh, behave with great ostentation in India, uh, for, for the same sort of reasons, it suited the company to underplay its power and wealth uh, back home where it was uh, likely to be taxed and, 
and restrained by, uh, by Parliament. Uh, and so they always maintain this very modest frontier while, while behaving like quasi-moguls uh, in India. But this extraordinary takeover of the richest country in the world by what was then a very distant, cold and backward country by a single London office block, I think is one of the most extraordinary stories in world history. Just to give you a scale of the unlikeliness of this whole story. When the East India Company was founded in 1599, Britain controlled just 3% of world trade. And the Mughal Empire controlled about 45%. It was, uh, <coughs> for that one brief moment, almost exactly uh, the moment it was founded, 1599, around that half century, India overtook China for probably the first time in its, and only time in its history as the, the world's greatest industrial powerhouse. So this one London office conquered that. How did that happen? This is the story I'm trying to tell. And that's been the skeleton or the backbone which I've written this book around. John Kay's book, um, which preceded it, tells amazing stories about the East India Company in Japan, in China, uh, and, um, and has a far greater global reach. I have neither told the story of its finances and its operations in London, nor its operations in Indonesia, China, Japan, and many other places it traded. I've been specifically trying to tell the story of how this company laid the foundations for the Raj, conquered India, and managed this extraordinary feat uh, of, of, of taking over the richest empire. The story, I think, let's start um, in Wales, in Powys Castle. And if you go and visit Powys and, and flash your National Trust ticket, um, you are given entry to a room which contains more Mughal and Indian artefacts than any museum in India, including the National Museum in Delhi. And uh, what you're looking at is loot, a word that entered English <laughs> at this period. It's a, it's a Hindustani verb. Lutna means to plunder. Uh, and, uh, and, and loot is Hindustani slang for looting. And it was a word completely unknown in this country until uh, for reasons where, that we will see, it entered English at this period. And if you go to Paris and, and if you try and avoid getting seduced by the glittering tiger heads of, of Tipu's uh, throne uh, or Tipu's campaign tent or Sirajud Dowla's uh, captured palanquin from which he fled the Battle of Plassey and all this other extraordinary stuff that's ended up of all places on the Welsh borders, um, there is a picture which explains how, really, it got to be there. And the picture is a large canvas, clearly painted by a man who'd never been to India, um, showing a plump, red-coated, portly Englishman um, accepting a scroll being thrust into his hand by an effete and rather feminine-looking Mughal emperor. And the scene it's showing is the scene that took place in 1765 in the fort of Allahabad. And in history books, this is something that they describe as the gifting of the Diwani, which means nothing to anyone uh, at all uh, and gives no idea what's going on to anyone in England or in India today. What's actually taking place is what we today would call an act of involuntary privatisation. <laughs> the Mughal emperor who had just been defeated in battle by the armies of the company, a mercenary army made up of Indians and financed largely by Indian bankers' loans. So the company using Indian finance to buy Indian soldiers to defeat Indians, quite a feat to do, um, has forced the Mughal emperor to hand over the rights to tax collecting in the three richest provinces of the Mughal empire. Uh, and this is the moment this crucial moment that the East India Company, which starts as a relatively conventional trading company, albeit one whose charter authorised it to wage war in the pursuit of trade from the very beginning in 1599, um, it's the moment that that company turned into a quasi-imperial power. 
uh, that no longer had to ship gold and silver out to India to buy Indian chintz, cotton, indigo, and all the other goods they wanted to buy in India. Because from now on, they controlled the finances of India and they could tax Indians and use the proceeds of that tax to buy the goods which they'd then sell in Europe. It was a brilliant business model and one that provided huge wealth to a large number of people. And indeed, you know, if you do have that National Trust ticket, you can go around the country for 365 days a year and, and visit lovely country houses that were built on the proceeds of that profit. Uh, and um, over the course of the next 100 years, Gold, for the first time in history, drains from India to Europe. As early as Pliny, you have letters in Rome complaining about the taste of uh, rich society ladies in Rome for silk saris, ivory ornaments and sandalwood paste. And Pliny, who's rather a Puritan, thinks this is a thoroughly bad thing. Why can't they wear good Roman cotton or, or, or whatever they I mean, Romans wore? I, I don't know what the textiles were. What do you have a toga made out of? Um, what wool? A wool, a wool, a nice woolen toga. Uh, why wear that when you... Uh, why, why wear silk when you could have that? And why wear sandalwood when you can... I don't know what Romans... Perfumes, or you'll help me out here as well. And, uh, musk, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and so for the first time in history, gold started to flow in the opposite direction. And in our own lifetimes, we've seen the beginning of that beginning to reverse. And what one realizes is that there is actually, just in, in world history, this brief blip of 300 years when, briefly, the, the, the balance of trade goes in our direction for the rest of history and probably our children and grandchildren's lives, it'll be the opposite. So... The company that took over India is founded in this city. Originally, it describes itself as the company of London merchants. And so not it isn't just <coughs> only an English operation, it's a specifically London operation. Founded in the Founders Hall in Moorgate Fields, uh, not so far from here, um, about the time that Shakespeare is polishing off the first draft of Hamlet. And... The people who go to Moorgate Fields, uh, their identities are written down in, by the notaries because it's a, it's a historic occasion and they're collecting money. So we know who turned up. And what's fascinating is that as well as the Lord Mayor of London and the big traders who ran companies like the Levant Company, there are hundreds of people who describe their careers as vintners, skinners, leather workers, in other words, small businessmen with a little bit of spare cash. And these guys give £50, £20, £10. And they're doing so in what is a relatively new business model. Medieval and ancient businesses ran on family partnerships. So Marco Polo's family had a business trading to China. The Medici Bank uh, involved lots of Medicis getting together and lending money. But... The Tudors invented a new form of corporate structure. Um, the idea probably came from the guilds. If you were a bunch of Suffolk wool merchants from Lavenham or Long Welford, uh, you would club together and uh, put in lots of money and you could all go and sell your goodies or buy goodies in Ghent and Bruges and places like that. Uh, but you were all wool merchants. The difference with a corporation is that you can gather... £10, £20, £50 from vintners, leather workers and skinners who have no actual say in the running of the business and, the, and don't play any active role in the business but just invest their savings. And the reason that this is invented is to finance far more ambitious projects. I suppose the modern equivalent would be Elon Musk or, or Richard Branson going to the moon, doing space voyages. You have to go gain so much capital for such an exp expensive operation that you need to uh, basically put the kitty out to uh, hand the, the hat around the largest possible number of people. And a large sum is raised and a ship is bought. Originally it's a pirate ship. Half the, half the sailors are pirates. They actually describe themselves as privateers, which of course is the plight 
Elizabethan euphemism for what we would call pirates. And the original ship is, is originally called the Scourge of Malice. It is literally a pirate ship. Uh, and someone at some point points this is not necessarily the right name for a ship that's meant to be uh, engaged in peaceful trade. And so they change its name to the Red Dragon, uh, which sounds like a pub. Uh, and um, off they sail, and the, the first voyage gets stuck. For some reason, the, the, the wind actually becomes them for a whole month within sight of Dover. So it gets off to an incredibly humiliating start. Uh, but the wind picks up, and they make it there, and, uh, and they do a little bit of trade, but then uh, they thankfully spy a Portuguese galleon, which, of course, they immediately go and board. And most of the pepper which is brought back to London in 1602 uh, actually comes from the Portuguese galleon, which is their usual modus operandi from, from warmer waters in the Caribbean. Uh, so it is literally a piratical enterprise. Um, and um, it's quite amateur, too. And the Dutch, who are much more financially organised at this stage, raise more money in the rival venture, the VOC. And quite quickly, the East India Company is beaten out of the Spice Islands by the Dutch. And so they then sort of concentrate on the second best... <coughs> option, which is trading in cotton, silk, very fine woven textiles that the Mughals call buffed hawa, woven air, so fine that you can, they're translucent, these incredibly sort of sexy dupattas that Mughal women wear, and the dye, to dye all the stuff, indigo. And the source of all these items was India. And by pure chance, they, they took this trade on because they'd been beaten out of the most popular trade, spices. But it was, in fact, the future. And chintzes, cotton and so on become a huge rave in, uh, in Europe. And by luck, it turns out that the East India Company's backed, in a sense, the right horse for the future. And by the early 18th century, India is the, or particularly Bengal, where there are one million weavers in every village. Bengal is the world's industrial powerhouse. What Manchester was in the 19th century, Bengal is in the 18th. So much so that there's deindustrialization, in effect, in Mexico, where so much Indian textiles arriving, cheap Indian textiles arriving for the, for the Mexican market. Um, and as major players in this increasingly important market, the East India Company grows and grows, richer and richer, and they plant a settlement in, that becomes Calcutta, another one that becomes Madras, uh, and one on the, on the east coast, uh, on the west coast, uh, Bombay, which takes over from the old Mughal port of Surat. And the power and the might of the East India Company grows as the power and the might of the Mughals diminishes for no particular reason of the East India Company. The, the Mughals have overextended under Aurangzeb. They've tried to conquer the great Deccan Sultanates. And then in 1739, Nadir Shah, who's a, 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 a Persian warlord, invades. And it's as if the Mughal Empire has turned into some incredibly ripe and inviting mango hanging from a tree. And Nadir Shah just walks in and plucks it. He has a new gizmo which is the equivalent of a sort of light anti-tank gun. It's a, it's a heavy jazel with an enormous lead slug that pierces Mughal armour, and it's bigger than any other gun at the time, and he, he, he builds a sort of tripod that you put on a horse's neck and can, can manoeuvre around a, a battlefield. And this is the swivel gun, as it's called, he takes to India, and 100,000 Persians defeat one million Mughals. And the, the Persian cavalry... Um, retreats in a mock retreat. The Mughals do this last great heavy cavalry charge like the, I don't know, the French at Cressy or something. And uh, at the last minute, the light cavalry part like a curtain and the swivel guns are lined up and a minute later it's all over. The Mughals are captured. Nadir Shah goes into Delhi. Three weeks later, he leaves with the peacock throne, with the Kohinoor diamond, the Darianoor diamond and 80 cartloads of precious gems, gold. And this basically takes the coal out of the Mughal boiler. There's no more power to the Mughal Empire because there's no money to pay for the troops or the civil service. And the Mughal Empire shatters and fragments like a mirror thrown from a first-floor window. And the people who gain from this are 
two rival European trading companies on the coast, the East India Company and their rival, the Compagnie des Indes, uh, which is under a very brilliant French commander called Duplay. And Duplay is the first guy who realizes that you can import to India the new methods of European warfare that have been developed on the fields of Flanders and, um, uh, and, and France uh, by the likes and Prussia by Frederick the Great. And these are simple things that involve infantry, um, uh, bayonets, flintlock, um, muskets and ca uh, artillery with elevating screws. That simple little screw at the back of a cannon that raises up and down and means that it can fire in all sorts of different, uh, different angles accurately. And these quite simple military innovations massively changed the nature of warfare. And the first battle fought like this is a small battle where about a thousand French Indian troops trained up by the French, sepoys, the first sepoys, um, defeat 10,000 uh, cavalry of the Nawab of the Carnatic in what's now southern Madras, the Battle of the Adir River. And this is the kind of military revolution on, in Europe imported for the first time to India. And for about 30 years, those innovations copied by the British East India Company under a young, violent, bipolar psychopath called Robert Clive. Um, and Clive is, I mean, really, Clive is one of the people I most enjoyed writing about. He, he's an incredibly rich character. The Victorians tried to sort of turn him into a great hero, but he's this, he's, he is this sort of thug. Um, he, as a boy, is recorded to have organised protection rackets in, in Ludlow uh, and, and uh, threatening to break the windows of shop owners unless they paid him money or get his friends to lie in front of rivers uh, and ditches in the town and divert the water into... I mean, literally, this is in page 16. And this sort of violent child uh, is sent by his father to India to get him out of the way. He falls off the boat off Rio de Janeiro nearly and is only fished out by luck. Um, he loses his baggage somewhere on the voyage in South Africa, arrives penniless, tries, tries to kill himself, uh, but doesn't succeed, and makes no friends and makes lots of enemies. But suddenly, when the French in the War of the Austrian Succession capture Madras, Clive suddenly turns out to be a very uh, talented soldier. And he, although he's actually a chartered accountant, that's why he sent out to India. Uh, and he is trained up by uh, a, a soldier who's fought on the fields of Culloden and Fontenay. Um, uh, 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 he's, he's known as the Old Cock. And he, the, uh, Clive is the star pupil. And he turns out to be a very brilliant soldier. And he's incredibly audacious. Indian warfare at this period is all about, uh, you know, bribes and, and diplomacy and threats. And uh, Clive marches through thunderstorms. He attacks at night. He waits for fog to fall and then marches troop in, in diversion. He's, he's brilliant, incredibly effective, utterly uncultured, utterly uninterested in India, totally racist. Uh, not one of his letters describes the beauties of the Indian landscape or anything about Hinduism or Islam or, or temples or... I mean, you know, as any tourist first postcard or email from India uh, is more informative than, than Clive's entire correspondence about the, 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 the society and the culture of India. And, I mean, the attractive thing, in a sense, about these Indian companies is that none of them are hypocrites. None of them pretend to be going out there to civilise India or build railways and hospitals or anything else. They're going out to make profit. Absolutely clear about that. And Clive particularly so. And Clive arrives in India for the second time, having been thrown out of Parliament for bribery uh, during his election. And he goes back to make a second fortune to try and have a second run at Parliament. And he arrives with a squadron because a sort of dodgy dossier has been sent to the East India Company saying that the French have sent a squadron of... a naval squadron to Bengal. It turns out to be rubbish. The squadron's gone somewhere completely different. But it happens that at this moment of crisis, a squadron under Clive arrives in India just 
as the news arrives in Calcutta that there's another kind of psychopathic character, Siraj Daula, who's this sort of Uday Hussein, who's this sort of spoiled, horrible kid, who's a kind of bisexual rapist. And I mean, a really nasty piece of work too. Um, uh, and he has just taken Calcutta and sacked it. And he does this because to try and keep the French out, the, the, the companies tried to rebuild the walls, but they haven't asked permission. And so he invades Calcutta, takes it, sacks it. And at any other time, you know, he'd have been bought off and a peace treaty would have been made. But on this occasion, Psycho Clive has arrived off the coast of Madras with a naval squadron and he persuades everybody to sell it straight out. Although the squadron was meant to be taking on the French, um, it, he sells it up the Hooghly and he retakes Calcutta and then he has a go and destroys the French um, port of Pondicherry. At that point, Something crucial happens. Just as he's about to go back to Madras, because they're worried that the French, this, this, this intelligence may be right and the French may be on their way to India, uh, and they don't want to lose Madras too, having just lost Calcutta. At this crucial moment, um, the... Um, at this crucial moment, um, the, the, the news comes that... Um, the, the, he, he, news comes from Mushidabad, that the, the most powerful bankers in India, the Jagat Sets, have decided they want to get rid of Siraj Udara, the Uday Hussein character. And they send a very straight offer if Robert Clive will march up, up from Calcutta to Murshidabad, they will pay him the equivalent today of, of five million pounds. And Clive says, I'm in for this, and, and so is everyone else, and they're all going to get a share of the plunder. So against all orders, contrary to any uh, war aims which were directed against the, 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 the French, and having already defeated, recaptured Calcutta and defeated the French, they go off on this trip to, 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 to get involved in this coup. And this is the crucial factor, because for all that the East India Company extracts and plunders, and for all that its, that its initial military edge uh, is the reason for its success. Equally important is the fact that again and again, Indian bankers find that they have a natural ally in a British company because they speak the same financial language. And the jugget sets, as they're called, the, the rich bankers of Bengal, are the first of a whole series of Indian bankers who, for, for different and various reasons, decide that the company uh, is its natural ally. And over the course of the next 30 years, Indian armies will catch up with the military technology of the company. But the reason that the company prevails, and in this final great struggle, which takes place in 1803 against the young, uh, with the young Duke of Wellington against the Maratha army, which is the last major army left, the crucial British edge, or the crucial company edge, is not that it has better bayonets or better muskets or has the latest military technology. It's that the Indian bankers, who have been used to this chaos after the Mughal Empire, decide that the company is the least worst option. And for all that the company will plunder, will export gold, will do all sorts of things that Indians will long regret. As far as the finances are concerned, the company understands the importance of contracts, it understands the importance of repaying loans on time with interest, and it understands the uh, importance uh, of, um, of having a court of law, where someone, if a company uh, has a has a complaint against a, a, a rival, uh, it can take a, it can it can go through a judicial process, and so while the great debate that is out there now really about the British in India at this period is is less about the fact that the British plundered India because frankly there's no really any way of of of, of uh, arguing to the contrary. From this period, despite famines and every other sort of natural catastrophe in India, individual Brits are sending home year after year fortunes of, in 18th century money, a million pounds a year. Uh, many of them die, many of them don't succeed, but enough of them making so much money 
that in this the wealth of India is just gushing westwards to London. And these guys are sending huge sums of money back, which is draining India of wealth. So that isn't a discussion. But the sort of dark secret on the Indian side is that enough Indians gained. And you get a rising Hindu middle class who do well out of the demise of the old Mughal gentry. The Mughals have come in, they're from Central Asia, or, and they're, uh, they themselves you know, uh, uh, have plundered the country. They tend to then use their wealth in India, which is the crucial difference. They don't go and build national trust houses and wells. They, they, they build palaces in Agra and Mushidabad and Delhi. But for the Hindu middle class, there are enough... They're, they're, their investments are safer with the company. For the bankers, they get their interest repaid. And that turns out to be the crucial factor. So the company can continue to pull off this trick of using Indian soldiers financed by Indian loans from Indian bankers to conquer other Indians. And that is how the company succeeds. By the 1803, when this book ends, the East India Company had, had conquered Delhi and taken the Mughal Emperor under its wing. It was growing opium in India, which it would sell in the greatest narco operation in history to the Chinese illegally to buy in, uh, Chinese tea, which it would then sell here in London and in Europe and, crucially, in America. And it was, of course, East India Company tea dumped in Boston Harbor at the beginning of the American Revolution. Uh, I had lunch yesterday um, near Leadenhall Street in a very nice Indian restaurant called Cinnamon Kitchen, which I strongly recommend, which is built in an old East India Company tea warehouse, which was built because uh, so much of this tea was arriving from China that the East India Company warehouses couldn't fit it in. Uh, and uh, there's great areas of London around Leadenhall Street with very sort of fancy bijou housing and nice restaurants now, which are built in the remains of these old East India Company warehouses in the city. And this company built half the London docklands. It generated a quarter of British trade. And its spending in England alone amounted to a quarter of the entire government budget. This company invented corporate lobbying. The, in 1693, in the first ever corporate, corporate lobbying scandal, the East India Company is found to be bribing the Lord Privy Council, I imagine is Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, <laughs> forebear. Whether he lay flat in Parliament uh, during crucial debates is not known, but he did end up, I'm glad to say, in the Tower of London uh, for this. And um, the, um, the, the company was incredibly wealthy, and it was the prototype for the many corporations today who span continents, who can say, as the company did to Indian rulers, well, if you don't like what we're doing and give us punitive tax laws, we can move elsewhere. Uh, and like modern corporations, they lobbied Parliament to the extent that one quarter of parliamentarians at the time of Plassey had shares in the East India Company. So while the, it, Clive had a naval squadron from the Royal Navy that was meant to be attacking the, the French as his troops in his little looting expedition to Mashidabad, having used British taxpayers' troops uh, to conquer Bengal, the conquered territory became company territory rather than British colonial territory, as, say, America was, the 13 provinces, 13 uh, colonies. Uh, and so over and over again, the, co the company finds ways, and this is the first time in history that this happens, of bending governments to its will. So one of the big themes of this book, as well as the company t hoovering up Mughal India, is the way that the company bends the government at home and perverts it and alters laws to its will, to its wishes. And that, in a sense, perhaps as much as the, I mean, the, the legacies of, of the Britain-India 
walk around the streets here and, and the human legacies are here. Uh, the, uh, I've just been in the Chelsea Hospital with all these plaques, the, the, the cannons from the Ch Chilean Wallabag sit in the, on the lawns of Chelsea Hospital. Uh, I mean, there are, there are fragments of this all around, but perhaps the most long-lasting legacy of the British East India Company in India is the mega-corporations of today uh, who have learnt to lobby. Take ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil has 20 senators paid up uh, as its lobbyists in Washington and seeks to do with those presenters what, for example, the Anglo-Persian oil company did in Mossadegh's Iran, which was, in other words, to topple in a coup a government which threatened to nationalise its oil. Just as, this was 1953, 1955, the same thing happens in Guatemala. The United Fruit Company owns 45% of Guatemalan agricultural land. A new socialist government is voted in, which quite naturally wants to nationalise a lot of this. Uh, and so the CIA bring down the government, uh, giving birth to the phrase Banana Republic. Um, 1977, ITT brings down Salvador Allende's, Allende's government in Chile for the same reason, that it's threatening its profits. ExxonMobil, ex-chairman, uh, only just retired as Secretary of State in Trump's government six weeks ago having fallen out with Trump. <laughs> so in a sense, it seems to be a mistake just to look on the history of the East India Company as a story of the British in India, uh, and, a, and a useful reminder of the violence and plunder which initiated British rule in India. But it seems equally important to remember it as the beginning of the story of rampant multinational corporations, which can certainly create profits and bring livelihoods and, and benefits to millions. But also, as with the, the collapsing bank scandals of, of, of the, you know, the uh, prime, uh, was it the, um, 10 years ago, the, or the, the, uh, the, all the, the collapsing banks, and uh, uh, oh, oh, they can bring countries down. And in the case of Iceland, very nearly did bring England down, as happened with the East India Company when it bust, went bust in 1772 and had to be bailed out to the tune of a million pounds. Um, so these are old stories which reflect strongly on not just the present, but the future. And... Um, there's a wonderful quote which um, I open the, the book with, which I'm going to end this talk with, which was uh, spoken by the, um, the Lord Chancellor of the day during the impeachment of Warren Hastings, um, who was, of course, Governor General of the East India Company. And Edward First Baron Thurlow spoke in Westminster Hall, stood up and said this line, which I think is the epitaph to this evening. Corporations have neither bodies to be punished nor souls to be condemned. They therefore do as they like. Thank you. <laughs>
irritate everybody in India that the great uprising takes place when an uprising is not led by Mughal troops or Maratha troops because they've all been conquered. It's, it's their own company sepoys, the guys on the front cover, these guys, who, who revolt. Um, and they rise up and they, uh, they try to restore the Mughal Empire. And the Brits have long dismissed the Mughal as, as this sort of figurehead. Um, but he very nearly succeeds in, in, in throwing, the, throwing the British out of India. And it's only by a, a, a series of chances that, uh, uh, that the, the, the company manages to restore power. But at the end of it, um, Parliament has had enough. Uh, they point out that there's a, there's a very nice quote. Um, the whole series of essays are written. And there's a, a, a probably by uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, there is a, um, he says, um, among all the, an anonymous article in the Edinburgh Review, among all the visionary and extravagant systems of policy that have been suggested, no one has ever been absurd enough to maintain that the most advisable way to govern an empire was by committing it to the care of a body of merchants residing at a distance of many thousands of miles. Uh, and this is a good point. Uh, it's not a very good way to govern an empire. So the, the Victorians wind it up, uh, as one commentator at the time says, uh, with less fuss than a regional railway bankruptcy. <laughs> and it's basically, uh, it's basically nationalised. And the company navy is disbanded, the company army is, is, is uh, uh, absorbed into the crown, uh, and India becomes part of Queen Victoria's empire. But that story is told in a different book uh, called The Last Mughal. <laughs> why did the French empire? I spoke called Napoleon. Why, what? So the French, Duplay makes a very good start and is much more clever and much more efficient than, than the early Brits. Uh, but the answer probably is that the, the company empire was supported by parliament and was always a middle-class affair, while the, the Compagnie des Andes, which is founded originally by the Scotsman, of course, uh, Jean, uh, uh, Lord de Loriston, Jacques, John, John, John Lord de Loriston, uh, whose biography has just been written by James Buchan, which I'm sure John would be very pleased to sell you too. Um, and um, that is a, basically a royal enterprise. Yeah. And, and it, yes, and it doesn't, and it's far more about politics than about money. And so it doesn't ever get the finance that it so needs. So we are a nation of shopkeepers. So we are a nation of shopkeepers, and very good shopkeepers at that period. I mean, still, we're very good. <laughs> Splendid shopkeepers. <laughs> Could I ask you a question about Warren Hastings? You mentioned him right at the very end, and I only had a quick look at the book before you came up, but it's a little bit where you describe individual characters, and you make him sound like a, a slightly fake faceless but rather um, uh, effective bureaucrat rather than the sort of criminal that he's portrayed to be by Burke and others. How, how, did, you, how did you judge him at the end? So I, I gave you my take on Clive, which was this, this sort of village psycho. Yes. I rather like Hastings. I'm rather keen on Hastings. I think he's been, um, been maligned. Mm. Hastings, unlike Clive, who doesn't write a single nice letter about anything in India, um, Hastings learns Hindustani, Persian, Bengali. He's out there from the age of 16. He loves Indian culture. He writes introduction to the Bhagavad Gita. And his early letters, as a young man, read rather like sort of, you know, a Guardian correspondent covering modern Kashmir or something. He's, he's outraged by the human rights abuses, we would call them, uh, of his contemporaries. Uh, and he's basically a, a good egg. Um, he, like everyone in middle age, um, adjusts to the realities of the world. But he's a scholarly, clever, um, Indophile. He loves India. He really, really in, uh, gets it. And he was very popular. Um, and I think, and, and, in, and, and one of the great ironies, I think, of this is that, is that they, you know, the, the, the wrong guy is impeached. Yeah. It, you, it would have been thoroughly justified to impeach Clive on a whole variety of, of, of corrupt activities. For example, most obviously, when he arrives for the third time in India as Governor General, he hears when he gets to Madras that the British have just had a major victory at Buxar, and he sends a coded letter to his banker to mortgage all his properties 
and buy as many East India Company shares as he possibly can, um, because he knows that the share price is going to go and quadruple, which it probably does. And, and he quadruples his fortune instantly, before he's even arrived in Calcutta. Um, and so he's a complete crook. I mean, I mean he's not a crook. He's, he's an extremely capable, clever man, but he's, 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 a, he's, he's a violent and, I think, rather unpleasant character. While Hastings is, is a cultured and, and likable man with a sense of humour, um, who's not an, by any means an angel, but he's a lot better than any of the others, in my view. Relationship between a, a, not a sovereign country, but a, actually a geographical area being seized by a private company is just—is it unique? I mean, it's, I, I sort of, I'm thinking, you know, Amazon raising an army and sort of or Microsoft <laughs> or, yeah. or suddenly invading sort of Japan. Or something. That would be the equivalent. That would be the equivalent. Microsoft taking over Japan. Yeah, exactly. That. Yeah. But with an army, with navy, with actual forces. I don't think there's any there's anyone who does that. I mean, there's no corporation that sov- that controls as a sovereign power. So, Hudson Bay Company and the the R- Rhode Island Company. There's lots of companies which um, uh, which have territorial control in that period. Then in Africa, there is the, uh, Rhodes uh, and the South African country, uh, South African Company. Um, and that does that, that does take over sovereign control in in the nineteenth century of, of of a great deal of southern Africa. And were people in London, politicians in London, questioning what these people with this company were doing? So one of the sort of heartening things is that lots of people and lots of MPs and lots of newspapers are questioning this at every time. And I was rather surprised by how many sort of guardianish articles there are in the in the eighteenth century press about these India Company. Um, <laughs> And even the even the directors in London are sort of you know fairly responsible, uh, and and they keep saying, we don't want more wars, we don't need more territory, we need profit. Our shareholders are on our backs. We need to make a profit. But over and over again, the guys on the ground, the, the you know the old eighteenth century rule was that if you if 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 a town resists and you take it, you can plunder it, uh, and. The plunder is divided with sort of 50% going to the general, another 20% going to his officers, and 30% going to all the common soldiers. Huh. And this is the, the, the rule across the globe. And it, I mean, the, the, the divisions vary, but the, the principle remains the same. So it is hugely in the interests of the people on the ground who tend to be younger sons from Scotland, so vicars. There's none of this at my period at all. The proselytization yeah. happens in the kind of 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah. And that story is again in, in the last moment. But this thing is just about profit. Just about it's just profit. guys going, trying to make fortunes. They did start recording. There are watercolours and zoos and gardens. There is a, there is a conscious, I mean, Arthur McGregor's book deals with that rather well, with the conscious recording, and of course the v is a beneficiary, and indeed the indoor office library. So I've actually got a, I've got a show of this stuff in the Wallace Collection in, oh, in December. Oh, uh, it's called, uh, it's called uh, Forgotten Masters, yes. uh, and it's opening in December, and it's com- the first exhibition in this country of company school painting. They may be recording for economic purposes, but they do wear a recording. So what, most of this stuff, most of the good stuff is private. It's, so it's Lady MP, who's a bird enthusiast from Whitney. In the 1950s, they already had in London samples of all the commercial stuff. So, and again, the, so the, the, the botanic gardens, which are founded in Simpore, in, in Calcutta, and, and Saharanpur, um, they're, you know, very much, they're, they're commercial things. So they're, they're, they're growing coffee, they're, they're experimenting with opium, they're grafting ginger. They're trying to work out what they can buy, what they eat. They're a commercial company, naturally. Um, but on the side of that, you get lots of um, botanists coming out from Edinburgh, uh, enthusiastic about this wonderful world they've discovered and commissioning mogul painters to paint their stuff. Uh, I say Lady Impey is the first. She's uh, Claude Martin, who's a Frenchman, does it in Latin now. Lady Impey does it in Calcutta. And, and they're masterpieces. He's so by the time of Warren Hastings, he gets out um, uh, Sir William Jones, who's brought out to run the first court, 
from Jane's founds the Asiatic Society, starts translating the Gita, all this sort of thing begins in the 1780s. But it's, never, it's not the company, it's individuals. So it's the same sort of individual drive which often leads to plunder, often leads, also leads to some of the more attractive stuff, like the paintings, the... Uh, the but the, I mean, but the, you, you, one gets so depressed by the company. The worst, I mean, the kind of worst moment of all is 1770, when having... They've only really got full control of Bengal in 1765, and it takes them literally five years to acid strip, and it's like a cloud of locusts. Sorry, uh, in 1765, the company gets full control of Bengal, and by 1770, they have so looted and plundered, just five years, that there is this major famine. And the famine isn't entirely their fault. The, it happens in, in India's under airing, sorry, areas under Indian control. But the difference is that, for example, when you go to Lucknow, there's the wonderful uh, Imambara, which is built in 1770 by the Nawab, and he employs all these people who are penniless and starving and pays them one rupee <coughs> a day to build the Imambara uh, as, as famine relief work. And people don't die because they, they're earning rupee a day and they can buy some rice. The company does nothing. It actually maintains its tax levels at pre-famine prices and slightly manages to raise it, as the Governor-General proudly reports. To, and they do that by sending soldiers out, erecting gibbets, and hanging anyone who doesn't pay their taxes. Uh, and um, so pleased at this slight level of raised revenue are the shareholders in London, that they vote in 1771 to raise the dividend from 10 to 12.5%. Um, and it's a total shocker. You know, it's a to and and, and you know, it wasn't like there was nothing they could do. There's lots of stuff they could do. But there's uh, some individuals provide relief out of their own private funds. There's, there's, there's lot, you know, there's, it, it, there, there are, of course, good men out there as well as, as, well as uh, vile plunderers. But the company as an institution does nothing at all. And as a result, one-fifth of Bengal, around a million people die. Um, and the company, as I say, does not, as a company, offer one bowl of rice to anyone. How good an investment was it for the shareholders? Terrific. <laughs> it was terrific. High dividends, 12.5% remains the dividend for quite a lot of the right. time. But if you're a shareholder throughout the 18th century... Well, like any business, you, you can lose money as well as gain, and there are moments when it goes down, the share price goes down as well as up. And um, one of the reasons that Edmund Burke joins in the hunt on Warren Hastings, the wrong guy, and he's impeached, is that his, his cousins had all been ruined uh, by, by unwise investments in the company. Um, so it was possible to lose money. <laughs> but you had to try quite hard. <laughs> Why do you call the book The Anarchy? So The Anarchy, so the book is, is, is not just about the company, it's about the, this period of Indian history. And The Anarchy was the title given, like in, sort of, I, mean, I suppose, originally in Matilda and Matilda and uh, age in, in um, who was she married to? Henry II. Henry II. No, Matilda's married Henry. to Stephen. Stephen. Hen Matilda and Stephen is the anarchy in, in British history. And I think prompted by that period, British historians describe the period after the end of the Mughals as the anarchy. And so it's about this period in, in Indian history. And just it sounds nice. <laughs> and I used to like the Sex Pistols. <laughs> to what extent did London actually exercise control? I mean, the notion of a letter saying stop that being becalmed for four months in the English Tunnel or whatever is, is realistic, isn't it? So yep. Did these guys just go out with kind of aspirational instructions or were they just told to go out and make what you can and send it back? Yeah. What was the kind of framework of, of, of management and So It's a good question. And the, the big difference between the 18th century and the late 19th century is, is the telegraph. And um, by the time Curzon goes out there, He's a bit like a modern ambassador, and he's really taking orders from London pretty, pretty quickly. You can, get a, you can get an answer almost immediately. To, you know, if he wants to know what London thinks about a particular policy, he can get an answer fairly quickly. But if Warren Hastings 
has an award to declare, he's unlikely, it takes a, a year minimum between sending a question out to London and getting an answer back. Uh, so, you know, you can't, um, you, you can't conduct policy on that basis. So the Governor-General has almost complete control. Uh, and he can decide to wage war or not. Uh, so or anything else. Are what? I mean, that's the so he, so, so the, the Governor-General has huge discretion to do more or less what he wants. I mean, that, he can be sacked, as Warren Hastings was, uh, probably unfairly. Um, and he can be withdrawn. Uh, as, and Wellesley was withdrawn because he just spent too much money. Um, and the, I, I mean, in general, the, the director's letters remain remarkably consistent, and they say we want a profit, a calm trade and a profit. And over and over again, they find themselves engaged in wars and with huge I mean, armies today, as then, are hugely expensive things. Wars are hugely expensive. And uh, there's a very interesting letter from the very first British royal envoy sent to India, who is Sir Thomas Rowe. And if you go to St. Stephen's Hall in Parliament, there's this picture of Thomas Rowe at the court of, of Jahangir. And Sir Thomas Rowe's sort of dispatch at the end of his mission, after a fairly unsuccessful mission in all sorts of ways, achieves far less than he'd hoped. Uh, but he says, a quiet trade is the only way to make any profit from this, from, from this business. Uh, and he gives the example of the Portuguese, who spent so much on fortifications and galleons they never made a profit and he said you know and he advises don't do not even fortify your settlements allow yourself to be protected by the local noab and that remains the 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 the, the, the modus operandi for about 50 years and they make profit but for quite a lot of the time the profits are heavily eaten into by the uh, by the sheer expense of of maintaining an army twice the size of the british army and fortification. I mean, Fort William is an incredibly, the headquarters is an incredibly expensive operation that bankrupts. And then Wellesley builds and decides the Governor General's house isn't big enough, so build, commissions a new house modelled on Kedleston. And, and you know, a lot of this sort of stuff goes on. And as soon as the, you know, the guys in London see that, oh, we didn't say you could build that. <laughs> the next question was regarding Shashi Tarore, the Indian politician and writer whose books condemn the East India Company. One audience member, after reading and being persuaded by Tarore's books, asked if this was true, if there was nothing to be said for British involvement. The, the big picture is kind of right, yeah. I think, the, I think we have a ridiculously romantic view in this country about the benefits of our empire, and, and we're just not prepared to believe, as the Germans have become prepared to believe, that their ancestors were, were evil shits. We, we <laughs> find it hard to take this in. The only then, uh, thing I can find that he hasn't addressed in his book is Sati. We've got him on that. So I don't. So no. So I mean, I don't, I don't go all the way. I mean, Shashi's not a historian, and the the, the book is riddled with errors. Uh, it's I mean, factually. I mean, for example, let's give one example. When the British were, when the company was at its most extractive, it locks the weavers in sort of concentration camps and sort of shackles them to their. Um, to their looms so that they produce more. And according to one source, who was by no means neutral, a guy called William Boltz, who was an enemy of Clive and wrote to bring Clive down, many of the weavers cut their thumbs off so they couldn't weave anymore, so that they would be released from these camps. Now that in time becomes a nationalist myth that the British come, cut the thumbs off weavers so that uh, they could bring in Manchester imports but you know Manchester didn't exist in this period the, uh, the industrial revolution hadn't begun and it's a completely garbled story Shashi repeats the old nationalist myth as if it's true um, and it's just not uh, so so factually it's it, it, he actually and he wrote it amazingly I think in two weeks or three weeks um, it, on holiday in Bhutan having done this very successful speech but the basic Thrust is very good for us all in this country to read because we have persuaded ourselves that we are this saintly nation who, who stopped the slave trade, who ended racism by defeating the Nazis and were an enormously benign force in world history. No, absolutely not. <laughs> we, you know, scientific racism is, is an idea that begins really in British India. 
um, the idea of uh, you know measuring skulls and noses and jaw lines and all that sort of stuff is absolutely up our street. For uh, um, there, I mean, there are plenty of things that we did, like William Jones, like this painting. That, there's all sorts of nice things, legacies that we can, and and most of all, we definitely united India, created a, a standing army, a, a judiciary, the rule of law. There are lots of things that accidentally emerged out of our. Um, of our encounter with India, but as Shashi says, you know, you don't need imperialism to build railways. Yeah. You don't need imperialism to found an army. We did unite it. Yeah. But then so did the Mughals, so did Ashoka. I mean, the, the particular boundaries of modern India are ours, but there were pretty good pan-Indian empires four or five times before us. Not exactly the same, but slightly, I mean, Kushans, Mughals, Guptas, Ashoka. Another question was more concerned with day-to-day affairs, the cohabitation of the British and Indians. More specifically, what were the interactions like with the local women of 18th century India? So that story is, is a particular period of history. There are... I found one case in the very early period when a, a, a company guy runs off with a beautiful mogul girl in about 1630, I think, in Agra. But by and large, that whole history of, of intermarriage and so on dates quite narrowly between about 1770 and 1830. It's about 50 years. And then, it, you know, it's a real thing. A third of all British men in India are married or living with Indian wives, huge Anglo-Indian population resulting from this, and a lot of them are wearing Indian clothes, reading Indian literature, and, and generally mixing in. But it, it doesn't happen early on where they're all living in a kind of collegiate system. In, you know, the Surat factory is like an Oxbridge college. There's a chapel, uh, there's a communal refectory, uh, and there's you know, not much opportunity to meet any Indians other than your, your dealers and your cotton merchants. Um, and at the end, after eighteen thirty, with the rise of evangelicalism, and and and, it's not. It's a myth that it's the the women. It the 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 intermarriage stops in the eighteen thirties before the British memsabs have arrived. Right. Um, the British memsabs start arriving after in large numbers after after eighteen fifty, mm. and intermarriage ends in about eighteen thirty. It's got more to do with power and Christianity. Um, and the, the, all the wills are in the Indra Office Library and you can get quite accurate statistics. And by about 1780, it's one in three Brits leaving everything to an Indian woman and it just goes down to one in four by 1800, one in five by 1810. Correct. And then this period, about 50 years, when, when it becomes initially very common, and then increasingly unfashionable, then uncommon, then it doesn't happen. Yeah. Sex goes on. There's still prostitutes. There's still, there's still Anglo-Indians being born. But it, it, it's not open. It's not, you don't get families being photographed together or painted together. So I think I saw your publishing uh, version of the book this for an Indian audience. How is this? No, the, the book is the same. The book is the same. It's just a the book is in a different, different, ti- different cover, different title. Yeah. So how is this period, Different subtitle. How is this period remembered in India and what's the kind of internal debate in public life? Is it universally the kind of inglorious empire ideal or is it delineated by class and region? Are there kind of complexities to it? So the company's forgotten really completely. It's just the Raj and it's considered a period of plunder. So, so I think I mean the book will be in, will, the book is already being reviewed in India as interesting in that it's reminding people that this was a corporate rather than a government thing, um, and it's getting warmly reviewed because it it sort of says what they already know <laughs> that it that it was a plundering operation. Um, what the second half of the book says about the collaboration. Um, is what potentially could be more controversial. And, I, and because none of the early reviewers seem to have picked it out, I've just written a big article about it in the main magazine to see what, see what that does, add a little Tabasco to the, to the whole thing. Um, but it's, 
uh, no, I mean, th- th- this, and this is actually really important. And, it, and if there's anyone, if there's anything to take away today, um, I think the key thing is that we have in this country a ridiculously benign view of our imperial past, which is not to say there weren't good things that came out of it. And uh, I don't subscribe to Shashi's view that it was entirely a negative operation. There, there are many good things going, but they tended to come out kind of by accident because we didn't go there for any reason other than to profit from it, ever, neither in the company nor later. There were individuals who persuaded themselves that they were there to do good. In the ICS and the Edwardian period, you have these chaps riding around the jungle in pith helmets, you know, proud to be one man governing a million darkies and, <laughs> and bringing justice. But, you know, the fact that it was only one man in a million was part of the problem. And one thing, I mean, the big criticism, I think, that Shashi doesn't do enough of is the... He, I think, I'm not an economist, but I underst- my understanding is that a lot of Indian businessmen did well out of the British and India, and that the Parsis, for example, controlled a lot of the opium trade, and a lot of the big Parsi fortunes are built under the British umbrella. So it was possible, as a banker or a trader, to do very well out of the British system. The shocker is the worst statistic about the British and India is that almost instantly the Raj ends, famine ends. Because the early Nehruvian governments invest in rural irrigation in places like the Deccan. And, and you know, the same sort of thing is happening in Israel at the same period. That, you know, drip irrigation, uh, lots of... Uh, huge rise in agricultural productivity. Enormously increased again in the 60s by the Green Revolution and these new strains of rice, which are, which are much more. And suddenly no one's starving. But all through the British period, as through Mughal rule, um, massive famines. Um, Shashi's wrong that there were no famines in the Mughal period. There were hundreds of famines. And, there, and it's a measure of the, the factual inaccuracy of his book that he makes it out that it was a specifically British thing. But the British did nothing to stop the famines. Churchill actually exacerbates it. And, and Churchill yeah. exacerbates it. Um, but uh, the simple fact is, within five years of the end of the Raj, there's massive irrigation works and very simple reforms, agricultural reforms, mean that no one starves. And, and the GDP per head just rises like that instantly. That's all now from William Dalrymple. Remember to check our website or follow us on Instagram or Twitter for upcoming talks, book signings and catalogues. We hope you can join us next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you.